The more we try to stay comfortable today, the more uncomfortable we will be tomorrow. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shitshows. For any new listeners, my name is Andrea, and I am a total shitshow, and I also have a problem with talking with food in my mouth. And I just want to start out today's episode by apologizing for uh, talking with food in my mouth in last week's episode with Tiffany. And I wasn't even thinking about it. It was like, I was just hanging out with Tiffany, sitting sitting on the couch, munching away, not realizing that I'm recording this for a podcast and a lot of people don't enjoy or actually have, you know, a real, a real problem with hearing people talk with food in their mouth. So I apologize and that will not happen again. And thanks to whoever left the review that said that, I do just want to say that I am always, always open for feedback. My door, my DM, uh, my email is always open for uh, feedback in, in any way. And same goes for my community. You know, I want all y'all shit shows to know that you can come to me for feedback. And I think everybody who who has done that can tell you that I've been very receptive. So I was thinking at one point, like, do I set up some sort of thing where people within the, the community could provide anonymous feedback? But then on further thought, part of this recovery, part of this adult child shit is learning how to speak up for ourselves and learning how to have those types of conversations, which are very vulnerable and uncomfortable for us. So I almost feel like if I had a some sort of a anonymous feedback thing set up, I almost feel like that's enabling in a way. Again, I apologize for the food in my mouth. Uh, so today we are joined by Amanda McCoy Flanagan, so she is the author of uh, a new, newly published book. It's called Trust Yourself to Be All In, Safe to Love and Let Go. So she is a, a fellow shit show like us. She is a New Yorker with a thick accent, and a, a big personality just like me. And we're talking about a bunch of shit. We're talking about hitting bottoms, hitting emotional butts in sobriety. We, were, we talk about the hard work that her and her husband have done to repair and grow and deepen their relationship and the impact that getting connected to her inner child has had on her and her journey. It's a goodie like all, like all of them. They're all goodies, right? Have there been any baddies? I don't know. You tell me. I just wanted to share that we just started going through the loving parent guidebook within the community. A group of us are going through it together. And I had a bit of a aha in the past 24 hours. And that is that I really need to recommit myself to being dedicated to love myself as much as possible. And I, I've been struggling. The past few months have been hard and a lot of core wounds have been hit and I've realized that my inner child has just been scared to death 
and my inner teenager has just been acting out and I have not been tapping into my my loving parent to give that love to my my inner child and to my inner teenager. And that is what this whole thing is about, learning to love ourselves and learning to reparent ourselves. But it's been, it's really powerful. This is like, we're going very slow because it's very heavy, the, the material and stuff. But I know that this is going to be a really powerful experience. We just started a couple weeks ago. So I feel so incredibly honored to, to have this amazing group of people to do this really, really hard work with that um, only seems like it's attainable when, when we do it together. So... Let's get the damn show on the road. But first, how about you, damn the joying shit show? This is my online community where I host four weekly Zoom support groups. There are also little sub group that have their own meetings. So there's a childhood sexual abuse group that meets once a week. We just started a divorce and separation group that's going to start meeting once a week. And I'm sure as we grow, we'll be adding more of these small groups. So check out the show notes to join. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? It's like every week I have somebody join that's like, hey, yeah, I'm the one that you've been yelling at for the past year to join. So I know that there's so many fucking more of you out there. So how about you damn the join? Can we just damn the join shit show already? Uh, next, give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok. And last but not least, whatever you do, do not pass go. Give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. And love you. Bye. The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago, and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce people always call me Andrea and I hate that shit. What if somebody called you like Amanda? Has anyone ever done that? Oh, but I love it. And living, I don't know if this happens by you, but in Colorado, they seem to like take normal names and make, and them, like, make them weird. Yeah. Like yeah. I've never heard much of that in New York. I don't know. Yeah. Amanda. Amanda McCoy Flanagan or also yeah, Amanda. Uh, she's the author of trust yourself to be all in save safe to love and let go. Why? Why did I write the book? Write it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of got struck with like a divine inspiration is really the way that I describe it. I didn't sit down and say, Oh, I'm going to write a book today or, Oh, I've always had this big dream of writing a book. It really wasn't like that. Uh, my education sets me up for it. I have an English and journalism degree, uh, undergrad, and um, then I have my social work degree. And I guess COVID, you know, I think really kind of like 
for a lot of us, it shook us up and it was like reevaluating your life and what do you want to do and what's your purpose and all that kind of stuff. And my kids were getting a little bit older. So I just was kind of putting it out there. It's my higher power. Like, all right, I have this education. I'm passionate about this. I have this experience. And I just went through this crazy healing, like started two years before COVID and it, it lasted and it's still going on, but it lasted until I started writing in 2021. Um, I had this like real three-year chunk of, of major healing. And I was running one day and all of a sudden I just heard, I just heard. Write a book. book. Yeah. You're going to write a book. And I was like, you know, like I couldn't say no, even if I wanted to, it was just this like thing, this like became like a compulsion almost like just forced, right? Like something drove me that I think that was other than myself, because then, then things just started coming in all like the dots were connecting of like all the work that I've done. And it was just like these like downloads. Right. And I was just like, what, what is this? And it just felt like so meaningful that like I had to share it. So I started, I took out, like they were coming so fast. I was talking to my phone mm. and I would like say whatever was coming just like in the moment. And then I'd like email it to myself and then like find a spot for it in the book. And it's basically, you know, so I was, I, I had, I, my first draft went to my editor and he was like, all right, like he was very, very kind about it, but he really was very honest with me. And he was like, okay, so there's a lot of platitudes going on here. Like there's a lot of rah-rah, you know, a lot of like motivational, blah, blah. He goes, but you have a story in there. He goes, I see it. He goes, you kind of dip into it here and you dip into it there. And we're having the conversation. And he's like, he's like, so just tell me the story. What happened? And I start telling him the story. And at one point I start crying. And he goes, that right there needs to go in the book. And I was like, oh, shit. What was it? It was about sexual trauma as a child. It was about like, I call it trauma. I, I know it's abuse, trauma, whatever you want to call it. But it, it was not like I talk about in the book. It wasn't extremely, in my mind, severe compared to some other people. But it was enough to shake me. And that is my one of my messages in the book doesn't matter. You don't need to compare, right? This is not a rivalry of trauma. If it affects you, it needs to be dealt with and looked at. And it affected what I went through affected me. And uh, I was just like, all right. He's like, listen, if you really want to help people heal, you know, uh, you need to tell the story and, you know, I'm crying. And I'm like, Bobby, that was the name. I'm like, Bobby, why am I doing this? And he's like, you tell me. And I said, I feel that I have a duty and an obligation to help heal this generational dysfunction in my family. And I need to, and I need to do it for my kids. I need to do it for myself. And in doing so, I believe I'm helping my parents to heal. I'm helping people that came after me heal. I'm not, there's a whole thing, seven generations before mm -hmm. us, mm -hmm. right? Or that seven generations after us. And it's just like, it just had to, it just had to, it just had to happen. It's just, it's time. Like, that's why you're here. That's why I'm here. That's why all these people are talking about stuff and doing this work now because we're ready. Like it's been, it's enough. Like we're living in a time where we're allowed to question and we're allowed, you know, like I always say, like we're no better, no better than my mother, no better than my grandmother, no better than any of these other people who just didn't know any better, right? If you know better, you do better. And uh, like, I feel like they're all like cheering for me. Like, yes, like you're doing it. Like you're doing the stuff that we saw was not okay yeah like it, we knew like but we really didn't know like we really didn't know well the education wasn't really there either wasn't 
nothing. And the healing modalities, right? Like therapy was like, oh, that's what I mean. Yeah. You're crazy if you go to therapy, even 20, 30 years ago, it was still like this stigma. Now it's like, yeah, go get it. You know, like we're all encouraged to, to heal. Yeah. It just wasn't available. It's interesting what you say when you talk about the sexual trauma piece and if it impacted you, then it needs to be dealt with. But I think the issue is for a lot of people, they don't realize that it impacted them. So what was kind of your, what was your situation as far as like, was there always an awareness that that had impacted you? So, you know, very often, I'm sure, you know, um, when you go through these experiences as, as a child, you kind of block it out. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't remember it until I was 21. Um, I was drunk one night and all of a sudden this memory just came back. And uh, I had asked my brother like to, you know, cause this was a babysitter who would watch like a whole bunch of us, like all the moms would get together and then they'd all, you know, stick us with this guy and, or he'd take us like to the pool or whatever. And so I was like, you know, cause I don't know, like right when I was drunk, I would get some like delusion. Yeah. So I'm like, is this real or is this not real? So over the years, I've spoken to different people and I have found out that things have, have happened to them too. And he, this guy was actually arrested for um, child sexual abuse like later. So I know I didn't make it up. And uh, yeah. What so did your brother say when you asked him? He said, no, he said, no, no, I don't know. Nothing happened to me. And then we called a friend and she was like, I don't know. I know. And then that was in like 2001. And then Shortly after my brother died in 2018, I had a conversation with that same girl. She called me or we called it. We were talking about my brother. And she goes, I have to tell you something. She goes, the night you called me, she goes, I had also been drinking. She goes, and I really didn't have any memory. She goes, but then afterwards, it came to me, a memory of us walking to the ice cream store. And this guy was in his pickup truck and he pulled up next to us. And he was like, get in. I'll take you guys to the store. She said, you turned white. Mm. and you would not get in that car Mm. she's like amanda come on he's gonna give us a ride like let's go like no brainer you know she's like and you would not Mm. get in the car she goes so i'm pretty sure and then i spoke to a couple people after that that kind of confirmed it so So it wasn't until so you had the memory in 2001 but it wasn't until 17 years later that you got confirmation yes did you think that did you not believe it when when you after you talked to them and they said no did you think no, that you just made I kind it of always I kind of always believed myself I kind of always knew because there were other things that like like being afraid of my husband not afraid afraid but like never really being comfortable in my own skin and my own sexuality number one and then like any sort of intimacy with him was always like not enjoyable mm. it was like a chore or it was like something that like I had to do and then I just I had kind of kind of gotten this message throughout, like my parents had always struggled and I didn't see a lot of affection go on there. So I kind of always got this message that like sex was bad or dirty or, you know, it's just a woman's job or whatever it was. Right. So I had this like really negative connotation around sexuality at all. But the fact that I was so like jumpy, like my husband would come up to me and like mm. help me or something right even holding hands I was a little like weird about like so like I knew I knew that there was something to this and I was also extremely promiscuous when I was drinking mm-hmm. and that's also a telltale like sign so um which was interesting because drunk I was like yeah you know and then like sober I'm like don't touch me <laughs> so um yeah no I kind of always always knew I always trusted myself in that respect hmm. How old were you when you got sober? 
26. Were you a one white chip wonder? What is that? What? White chips there. Sorry. In Florida, they give white chip for like when you get, when you first come in, were you a one, did you relapse or were you like a one timer? One timer. I haven't relapsed. I'm really afraid to like, like the fear, I have a healthy fear of relapsing. Like I was a blackout driver. Like I, I drink and I drive and I'm not proud of it at all. It's horrific and atrocious that I put people's lives in jeopardy like that, mine as well. Um, but that's just where I go. Mm-hmm. That's just where I go. This I, is where it goes to the car. I go to the car. I pick up where are those keys? I want to blast the music. I want to drive fast. Um, and in New York City, <laughs> well, you don't even have a car. Or are you yeah, living elsewhere? I was in I was in Long Island at the time. Oh, okay, okay. But in New York City, like I used to work in the city, and we'd go out after work, and I'd be gallivanting around the streets of Manhattan, like five o'clock in the morning by myself drunk. Like I could have died a million, like a million times. Um, so it's life and death for me. And I'm well aware that it's life and death because I've also seen it, right. You stick around long enough. You see people die. Mm-hmm. I had people die right in the beginning. I had somebody die. I think we were all, we were three months over and somebody killed himself. Mm. Um, and then overdoses. I had a boyfriend who died at eight months sober. Yeah. Um, that was really hard. Um, was he, did you meet him in the program? Yes. We came in the same week. And I had my eye on him. Nice. I was like, no new relationships in the first year. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this right. Like, I'm going to do this right. Because that's like my stupid perfectionism. I don't know. After like six months or so, I just like kept nagging and nagging and nagging. And we just got together. We're only together for a few months. But it was like really like intense for those like few months. And early recovery comes with all that, those feelings and stuff. Um, So he had diabetes. And um, he, I thought he died in a diabetic coma. And then I found out after he did overdose, he did use. So like I say in the book, probably both are true. But yeah, so that shook me. It shook me. Like, and I'm, I'm, I'm not glad that those people obviously died. You know, the saying, sometimes people die for others to live. Mm-hmm. I feel like that happened for me where it was like, I, it just, it just scared the crap out of me. And I was like, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just not going to do that. And then, and really the only thing that's ever, that's kept me here is being of service. Like, it's so freaking true. Like, that is the answer. Like, I've just never not been involved in a group. I've never not had sponsees or a sponsor. I will, I think I was sponsorless for about a year in the beginning. I've never, you know, I've never been disengaged from the program. I've always kept myself in the middle of the herd. And I think that that is the only reason why I've made it this far. Yeah, that's same for me as far as the one thing that I've done every single day of my sobriety is I've connected with somebody else like in the program, like without fail. Yes. Still, I was crying the other day in a meeting. I don't usually don't cry in meetings, but I had some, I have some crazy thing going on right now. And uh, I was talking about sharing about it. And I just started crying. And then after that, I called a few people. I have a sponsor in New York. I have a sponsor here in Colorado. I called them. That's it. That's the ticket. We got to, we got to share our pain. We got to share it and then get a solution because they can see us right where we can't, they could see, they could see outside of us. Like, okay, this is what you're doing. Or this is what you could do, you know, to get out of this. So yeah, the fellowship, right. That's why with the three, you know, service, unity and recovery, the, the unity piece. It's so, so huge. So in the book, you talk about kind of three well, I think at least three, there might've been more, but I think I got up to three kind of emotional bottoms. What was your second? Cause the first one was the death. 
The second one was when I moved here to Colorado. I was so lost in my identity. I had a total identity crisis. I had no idea who I was. I had no idea that I was so dependent on being a New Yorker. Mm. Right? <laughs> and, 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 I know, us New Yorkers, we're so proud. I heard a joke. How do you know if somebody's from New York? They'll tell you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I was so caught up in that and caught up in like just um not even just being from New York. I think we all, you know, kind of uh identify ourselves or find ourselves in our friends, in our family, in just the familiarity of the town we live in, just the everyday stuff you don't have to think about, right? You get in your car, you drive to the supermarket. Like I talk in the book, I had like a, a breakdown in aisle four because I couldn't find the milk at the supermarket. Like it was just like, well, it didn't happen at that moment, but it was starting. That's when it like my, something happened in my brain where I was like, I can't find the milk. I just need to find the milk. Um, and uh find so, the milk. <laughs> <laughs> show me where the milk is damn it but um yeah so it was like this epiphany and this awareness that I my identity was completely dependent on people places and things around me and I had no idea who I was in my core mm-hmm. you know no I was nine years sober when I moved here mm-hmm. you know time is you know I think getting through experiences and saying sober has its merit but really time in terms of like, if you're not really searching or doing the work time economy, I know plenty of people that are 30 years sober and are crazy. Miserable. Yeah. So miserable. Exactly. So um, it's what you do with the time. I think that matters, but uh, yeah, I was just, I just, I had no idea who I was. And then I got into an argument with a friend with a, actually it was a sponsor and mm-hmm. I'd never, never had any issues with anybody before I moved here in, in, in recovery. And um it, you know, it was just like the straw that broke the camel's back. And I came home and I just, I went right upstairs into my room and I just got on the floor and I just cried and howled. And I was just so lost. And I was just so just at a bottom of who am I? Who am I? Like this other existential crisis, you know? And I guess it takes what it takes, right? Like I couldn't have done that work before because it mm-hmm. never Right. I had to move to Colorado in order for or anywhere for that feeling to come up of who am I if I take away all of those shields, really, and masks and things that I use to identify myself and then create my personality out of and right. Like, who am I in my core? So that was that was a really, really big one. And I think that set me up for the work that I'm doing now because I feel like a sense of self-worth and self-love I feel like that's when it started um nine years and then I wrote the book when I was uh I just published it so I started in 2021 so that was like uh five or six years later or whatever but um yeah it that was like the beginning of the well who the hell am I if I don't have all those things attached to me and just like can I be completely stripped down naked exposed vulnerable and then I was able to redefine myself or really define myself for the first time because I never really did. I came to AA. I, I didn't know what my favorite color was. I didn't know what my favorite food was. I just didn't, I just didn't, I'd like to have you liked, right? The chameleon, just so you'd like me. So I was able to like really get real with that, but it wasn't really anything I did. None of this growth I've ever had was like, I'm going to go into this like wholeheartedly and I'm going to hit the floor. No, it just was all like put on me. It was all just forced upon me. And I couldn't not look at this stuff because it was just too painful. Right. What is your favorite food? 
My favorite food is tortilla chips and hummus. <laughs> I eat that every day. My family jokes, they call me the hummus queen. Now I'm branching out with other things with hummus. So it's really the hummus, I think. Um, but yeah. Uh, Do you like the plain hummus? Are we doing like a, like a, are we going to have like a flavored hummus or what? Oh, I did the everything hummus recently and that was good. I did like that, but it didn't feel like, I felt like I wanted more spice to it. Um, so I typically just err on the side of, of plain. I, I don't like change very much as <laughs> most of us don't in recovery. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm vegan. So how long have you been vegan? Three years, three and a half years. Man. We did it. We decided right before COVID we were like, shoot, how are we going to keep this up? You know, my husband being an 11 first responder has chronic respiratory illness. So COVID was like a real serious mm-hmm. thing for us. Mm-hmm. So I was like ordering the groceries to be brought out to the car. I was doing it all online. Like it was just, just crazy. But um, yeah, that's been, that's been awesome too. And that has helped me so much. And I'll tell you the veganism, the best thing I got from that is I don't have that like three, four o'clock in the afternoon brain fog. I used to get that all the time. That went away. Mm. I don't need that pick me up in the afternoon anymore. So was your husband already so- sober when 9-11 happened? Yes. Wow. Yeah. He got sober in 96. Okay. Wow. So- five years sober at the time and he also you know stayed sober he's also a, a, a white white chip wonder is that wonder, what you call yeah it? what one white chip wonder one white chip yeah so what do you know about the generational dysfunction like within your family like was there an understanding of that like as a kid no i've always felt like but i've always not an understanding but an awareness yeah that something's just not right here right uh-huh and as I got older and I started noticing the way my friend's parents interact or, you know, the way my friend's parents, like her dad's like hugging her at college, crying, leaving her at college, you know, like my dad loves me. My parents loved me, but it was just delivered in a different way. It was delivered in the way that it was delivered to them. Right. And the way that it's delivered was delivered to me. My relationships with my parents are both at the pinnacle of where they've ever been. Um, but the way it was delivered to me was in a way that I just couldn't receive it. Um, and I just don't think that it dawned on them. You know, it was kind of always like, well, what's wrong with her? What's wrong with Jeremy? What's wrong with my kid? You know, it was kind of always thrown on us as like, we're not, you know, doing the right thing or we're acting out or we're, you know, whatever, whatever it was, was kind of thrown back on us instead of like, well, what are we doing wrong kind of thing? Although, you know, I say in my book, my mom did try to take us all to therapy at one point. I was 16, Jeremy was 19, or maybe even younger, maybe 14, 17, I don't know. But um, we were like, yeah, no, like we're not doing this. You know, we were teenagers. So in my parents' defense as well, they did try here and there. And we just, we just were, I guess the damage was already done. I don't know. I don't no, know. Yeah, I mean, I, way before that, absolutely. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've been drinking since I, I started drinking when I was 13, you know, and my brother was 16, three years older than me. And I just followed in his footsteps. Um, and so I was aware that there were things that just weren't like, I wouldn't even say normal. They just felt wrong to me. I always felt like there was like a big lie. I always felt like there was like this big lie going on and I couldn't really like understand or wrap my head around it. And I've learned now from doing the work that I've done in ACA and therapy and A and and all the steps and meditation and all that, you know, I've, I've, I've come to learn that my particular family, my brand, my family's particular brand of dysfunction is, um, 
protect your heart. Always love a little less mm. because you're going to get hurt. Right. And I don't think it's just prone to my family. I think like that is this generational shift that's occurring now in a lot of people's lives is that's why I wrote the book is because it's, it's this message of this, this fear of loss. Like you should be afraid, be in fear. Don't ever love fully. Don't give of yourself fully because pain's going to come and you need to be prepared. You need to be prepared. How can I be fully all in if I'm constantly keeping this thing in the back of my head that I have to protect myself. I have to prepare. I have to, you know, all that. I mean, and it shows up in the perfectionism. Right? It shows up in all these different ways of planning and preparing. Like I say in my book, I'm, I'm a, I'm a pain prepper. I prep for pain before it's even a possibility. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> prepper. I've never heard that. I love that. Oh, pain prepper. Fuck that. <laughs> Right. Like I'm like thinking like the worst case scenario all the time. And I guess that's also a symptom of trauma. Right. It's like never just being present and fully there and enjoying the moment. Like, fuck, like I, I completely like ruined or wasted so many years, so many years living like a half a person. Right. Like we say, when we get sober, like we just existed. Right. We were like a shell of a person. I was like that way into my recovery. And it's like, I'm doing this work also. So people don't have to waste all that time. Like I see newcomers and they're like embodying this kind of stuff and really open to it. And maybe it's the time as well. I got sober in 2006, but like, I tell them all the time, I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy for you that you can like address this and like go into this stuff. Like now in 20, 2009, a therapist pointed it out to me. She said, you, you are afraid of emotional intimacy. You have an issue with emotional intimacy. And uh, the way she pointed it out to me was I would always pick emotionally unavailable friends, mm. chase people. I would chase people who couldn't give me what I wanted. And that's the whole recreating the emotional abandonment. It's interesting. So did it mostly show up in friendship as opposed to romantic relationships? Um, it showed up in both. Um, like when I look back on it, when I look back on it, um, I wasn't in many romantic relationships, like before I got sober and then met, I met my husband shortly after Mike died in early recovery. But, um, when I look at, at those, yes, there was a lot of, a lot of chasing or a lot of thinking that relationships were something that they really weren't, you know, like me being more invested or thinking that we were like boyfriend, girlfriend, and like, we really weren't, or like, I was in a long four-year relationship with somebody that was extremely dysfunctional from the get-go, um, and just got worse over time. And he also suffers from addiction. So yeah, I picked people that just could not give me what I needed because I guess I never really believed that I deserved to be loved fully and completely and respected and all that, because that was the idea I held of myself. Do you remember what the, what the situation was that led to your therapist saying that to you? Um, I think I had told her I was trying to make a friend in the program and I was complaining that she wasn't calling me back or that she wasn't like, and, and I think I had told her there were like a couple of people like that. Like mm -hmm. I was trying to create a group of girlfriends. I think I was like two, like maybe three or four years sober. And I was like, I need like a crew. Like I need like a group of girls in this program. And, um, and she would ask me about how I was going about doing that. And that's when she saw like the pattern of the different people that I was picking and they weren't able to give me what I was looking for, but I kept doing that over and over. And she was like, you're just chasing emotionally unavailable people. So 
but I, so I knew that the seed was planted, but I wasn't really able to handle it until like nine years later, like when everything then, you know, hit the freaking roof with my husband. And I was just like, I didn't think I loved him and all that. And it was just like, well, I want to dive into that. So tell me, tell me about that bottom. So that was the third so far. I mean, <laughs> I'm only 43. There may be more. Um, but that one was, so my brother died, um, drug overdose, heart attack, however you want to look at Did it. He, he'd struggled for a long time. So Jeremy started as well at like 13 years old. Yeah. He had, um, you know, just drinking in, in high school and stuff. And then the harder drugs came on the scene when he started working on wall street mm-hmm. and then, and then it just progressed. Then it just progressed. And my brother was very charismatic you know, I see that phrase, he could sell ice to an Eskimo, like that was him. And like, there was a time where he was like getting high, just sitting in his, in his house on his couch in the dark, making money because he was an uh, mortgage broker at that point. So he would just have to make phone calls. And then he had his like underlings to do his work for him, you know? So that was Jeremy. So he was able to continue living that way. And then he moved to Seattle and that's kind of when he would get some time together. Look at me wrong. He would try. He would, he would go to AA, maybe NA, I'm not exactly sure. Remember I had like one conversation with him where he was like, oh, I'm going to start my fourth step. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Right. And then, then he was like out like a couple months later. So he was that in and out. I think he was that constitutionally incapable of getting honest with himself. I think Jeremy lacked um, humility in the way of being able to like be sober and feel humble and do what he had to do. So like, even if that made him feel scared or afraid or whatever, like he just couldn't, just couldn't go there. Um, so yeah, so he wound up dying, uh, after like 25 years of drug and alcohol abuse, his heart just gave out. So, um, after that I was, you know, like for three months after that, that was in March of 2019, 2018, three months after that, I was just laying in my bed, going to meetings and taking a bath. That was all I could do. I was down for the count. And I knew he was going to die. I said it to my husband on New Year's of that year. I said, Jeremy's going to die this year. And he died a couple months later. I mean, it was pretty obvious. I mean, he was living in a he was living in a car for two years. And then he wound up living in this like shack. It's like wooden shack. Um, and I'm pretty sure all he had was like a mattress. Did um, he, what did he go out? Did he initially go out to Seattle for a job? No. No. I think he chased his addiction. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Seattle is. Yeah. It's like San Francisco. It'd be like a little bit of a dark place, right? Like it has it's just like overtone. I mean, it's always cloudy. It's always rainy. Like it just feels like to me, he, he did that to, to isolate. I think his disease, right? It works hard to get us alone so he can kill us because he lived in the town we grew up in. And it was like, I did an intervention for him right before he moved. Um, so I think he wanted to get away from everybody. Mm-hmm. It's about um, as far away as you could get. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So after that, uh, he, uh, I was, like I said, I was like down for the count. And then in like June, I started to feel better. And I thought I was like healing. I thought I was like getting better. I was in therapy. Um, and then I went to a Pearl Jam concert um, in Seattle, right near where my brother used to live. I was only five months away from my brother's death. I mean, I had a, sh- I had a shirt in memory of Jeremy S. McCoy, you know, like I didn't realize how much my grief was still playing a part in a lot of my decisions. Yeah. And 
and I met somebody and I had like a uh, spiritual kind of connection to this person. I know now, Jer- I believe Jeremy put this person in my path to wake me up. Mm-hmm. You know, it was never about another person. It was about my healing. Mm-hmm. But at the time I was very convinced and I came home and I told my husband, I don't love you. I don't think I ever loved you. Well, you know, I think our, my decision to marry you was completely like intentional and uh, premeditated. It was very well thought out. So uh, he's like, don't you think maybe your grief might be playing like a part in this? Like your brother just died. And I was like, you know what? I've been in recovery long enough that I know that there's probably something else going on under the surface. Like, well, I take a look. Uh, So we went to marriage counseling together. I stayed in individual counseling by myself. Um, And about six months later, I found ACA. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting in that meeting by mistake. By mistake, I thought I was going to an AA meeting. And uh, he had a laundry list. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, holy shit. What, which, what trait really struck a chord? Um, Are you going to pull it up? We'll pull it up. 14 traits of an adult child. Let's take it. There we go. Okay. Came isolated, afraid of people and authority figures. Became approval seekers and lost their identity in the process. We're frightened by angry people and any personal criticism. That was that was one that definitely jumped out. And the approval seeking. I mean, all of these um, came not really one as much, but two and three so far. We became we either became alcoholics, marry them. Yes, yep. yes, yes. Clearly, either compulsive personality such as a workaholic to fulfill our sick abandonment needs. Yes. Uh, we live life from the viewpoint of victims attracted by that weakness in our love and friendship relationships, you know, saving people. I always want to fix everything and everybody. Uh, we get guilt feelings when we stand up for ourselves. Definitely. Instead of giving into others. Definitely. I can. And I still struggle with that. Like I'm working on that. Right. When I create a boundary, I still get like, I still have like a weird feeling like this leftover thought pattern. We became addicted to excitement. Definitely confuse love and pity and tend to love people. We can pity and rescue. Yes. This person in particular that I met, I feel like that was going on. Uh-huh. Yeah, I feel like maybe I was trying to like save him. We have stuffed our feelings from our traumatic childhoods. Yep. And have lost the ability to feel or express feelings because it hurts so much denial. We judge ourselves harshly. Yes. And have a very low sense of self-esteem. Yes. Dependent personalities who are terrified of abandonment and will do anything to hold onto a relationship in order not to experience painful abandonment feelings, which we receive from living with sick people who are never there emotionally for us. So, yes. So this idea of I'm going to, you know, try and work out my marriage. What if that doesn't work? Like the idea of like never being alone with this other person again was like, whoa, you know, like that scared me. And it was like, even though I was like very willing and I knew that something wasn't right about it. And I wanted to be with my husband and I wanted to do this work, you know, over time I say in the book too, it took me a little, little while to actually get there. I I had this, like this fear that I was going to be alone. Right. Like if I, if I didn't, you know, like I say in the book too, my, my therapist said like, you can have it all because I said to her, I feel like I deserve to have it all. And she said, you can. And I had this crazy fear that I was never going to have this emotional connection with a person that I wasn't going to get. I didn't think it was possible with my husband is basically what it came down to. That was probably the biggest one. You want me to keep reading them? No, no. The last two are weird. (laughs) (laughs) The last two are like, duh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The one's like, uh, we took on the characteristics of the disease. It's like, yeah, we just read all those are all characteristics of the disease. Yes. This last one is like basically like um, having reactions to 
reacting to the past and the present. Yes. And, and being reactors and not actors like, yeah, like I feel, I'm so grateful for this work and that it actually worked for me that like, I feel so much more in control of my decisions today. Like, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. If I get some kind of like crazy text, like this just happened recently, you know, like I'll type out something immediately and then I'll delete it mm-hmm. and, then I'll, and then I'll delete it, you know, but it's like, I'm more in control of the decisions and my actions today that I'm not, I don't feel like forced anymore because I used to feel that pressure of like, you have to respond and you have to react and you have to do it quickly. Like now you got to give somebody an answer. No, I don't. One of the greatest things I heard in AA was, you know, you can tell people I'll get back to you on that. I'll get back to you. Exactly. No shit. Yeah. If you don't have an answer, how were you able to cultivate the type of relationship with your husband that you always wanted? So I got to give him a lot of props. We would not be married if he didn't do his work mm-hmm. because he, uh, I, I, I always say like he has PTSD, but I really feel like I want to say he had PTSD because he's done a lot of work, specifically hypnotherapy, but he did EMDR. Um, he's done a lot of stuff um, because I was getting like worried for my kids. You know, it was kind of getting to the point his, his PTSD was coming out in ways that like were making my kids starting to get, to get nervous. You know, like my daughter will like spill a glass of water. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, and it's like, it's not like we were like mean or would yell at them. It was just his reaction would scare them. And uh-huh. it really had nothing to do with them. It had uh-huh. nothing to do with like, you know, whatever. It was about his, you know, when things when you have PTSD and something happens suddenly, it freaks you out, shocks you. Um, and then his ability to get vulnerable as well, which we did something called a MAGO relationship therapy do you know about Imago? Imago uh-uh. goes so hand in hand with ACA stuff it's perfect I talk about it in my book um we did Imago by ourselves in uh during COVID because we stopped going to in-person therapy uh-huh. and uh, we didn't really want to do it online and uh to get marriage counseling anyway we didn't want to do it online and so uh Jim had seen this this speaker his name was Harville Hendricks this guy came to the fire department to the counseling unit uh, when Jim was working there a long time ago and I mean, Jim had been telling me about this, this theory and this guy for like our, almost like our whole relationship. And um, so we asked our therapist about it and she goes, yeah, she goes, I've been actually like using some of those techniques, but I'm just not calling it. I'm just not telling you. It's oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so we did this workbook on our own together and what Amago does it, it really, it guides you, the workbook guides you to uncovering childhood wounds basically that you experienced from living with caretakers or parents that Mm -hmm. lacked in any any way like multiple ways right like we say in ACA like couldn't give you what you really needed emotionally all that kind of stuff but like uh it was like specific like we'd write it down we'd write like memories down or we'd write our qualities and traits of our parents and things that we weren't getting from each other. So the way Imago really works, like for instance, it's like, it's very, it's not just about like saving marriages. Like my book is definitely not about saving marriages because not all marriages should be saved. Um, it's about you healing because you're going to bring that same person into the next relationship because that's what relationships do, right? I don't have to tell you, they show us what needs to be healed. Um, so like, for instance, say, like I talked about emotional intimacy before, I have a fear of emotional intimacy. Jim says to me, I, I, you know, need some more emotional intimacy from you. I say, and I say, okay, I'm willing to look at that and I'm willing to heal that. So yes, it's serving his need, but it's also filling that part of me that fears emotional intimacy. Mm-hmm. 
So it's a process of finding yourself and healing your own wounds through a relationship Mm. because that person's mirroring to you what, what it is needs to be healed by them saying, you know, you're not meeting this need. I need more affection. I need more attention. I need you to be more patient. And then you realize that those things in you. So like, say, like, say he saw those things in me, a lack of patience or like in some way, his parents did the same thing, right? It's almost like the thing of you marry your father. It's almost like that. But then this program, this workbook, this whole theory therapy gets, gets you to identify these things and then become willing to heal them. Mm. So that was pivotal 2020. So like, yeah, like we've been doing work for like a couple of years, but it was still like something was still missing. Something just still wasn't quite right. Like I wanted more. We were okay, but I wanted more. I wanted to be closer. I wanted the connection. And that's what my book is all about. Underneath it all is about connection to yourself first. And then you can connect with others and the universe and, and all that kind of stuff. But I have to connect to myself first. And it was doing a lot of a lot of that work got me to to heal those childhood wounds. What was a core wound that you were surprised to uncover? Surprised? Um, I don't know if there was anything that I didn't really know. You mm-hmm. know, it was mainly the emotional intimacy and the like lack of affection. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe my anxiety, maybe it was like what, what we kind of, what we came to that was interesting was that my anxiety, his mom is very anxious. And I believe that he chose me to, because I also was anxious and yes, he was used to that, right? We're familiar. And then it's almost like if he can help me not be so anxious and he can heal his mother right? It's like all that psychological entanglement stuff. But um, it was it was really like an epiphany that he had anxiety from his PTSD. I had anxiety because I have, um, what's better now, I think, but I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder at one point. And um, we fed off of each other. We fed off of each other. My therapist pointed out, she goes, you guys just like feed and like bring higher and higher and higher instead of like one of you being able to put the fire out. You can't, like we, we thrived on that. So it was very interesting to me that I learned that I used my anxiety to create problems between us or I'd see his anxiety and I would jump onto it. I would glom onto it. And then in my crazy brain, I would try to make things better. Like I'd create chaos, I'd create a problem. And then I would try to smooth it out, make things better, make everybody happy again. And then that meant that I was valuable and I was worthy and I was lovable because I was able to make everything okay again. So it was like this crazy loop of, of anxiety and fear, and then it's okay. And then anxiety and fear, and then it's okay. So that, that was an awareness that I I didn't know until we went through the work. It's so interesting. It is. What about the inner child piece? So I love meditation. I love that meditation in the 11th step and in ACA with the beach, right? The one where they're walking on the beach and your, your parent, which is you. Have you done the loving parent guidebook? No, but I've heard of it. And that's probably going to be my next move. Yeah. Um, we just started doing it in my community. We just started working through it. Yeah. Cool. It's great. Sorry. Continue the meditation. Yes. I describe it in the book too. And that, that inner child meditation, like really, 
helped me one day. I was, I call it the meditation cave. It's where I meditate. It's a place in my house. It's all candles and crystals and all kinds of stuff. That's where I take my podcast to. And, um, and I, I'm in the work. It's 2020. I had gone through the steps online, uh, with a couple of people, um, on zoom. And, uh, so I'm sitting down there and I'm really open at this time because we were all alone during COVID. And I think you find yourself really when you're alone. I was out in nature a lot. So I was really open. So we got up to this part and I'm doing the inner child meditation of walking on the beach. And then you get out, you're holding your little inner child's hand. And then you, you see people who uh, hurt you in the past or couldn't fill your needs or whatever. And then you turn around and you walk the other way and you're like, I'm good. Like, I don't need those people to fill those holes for me anymore because I can fill them myself. That's the whole, that's the whole thing right there. Um, and then after that, after that experience, um, I just like put my little Amanda on my lap and I like hugged her and I was like, you're safe and you're good and it's okay. You know, and then I had another experience out in nature where I, I talk about in the book too, I find this flower like the rose, um, the rose is a symbol throughout the book. And, um, and I just have this moment of feeling that I'm safe and I'm okay. No matter what anybody does around me, no matter what anybody says, no matter who stays, no matter who leaves, I am okay because I have God or higher power, whatever you want to call it. Um, it, she, he, they, whatever, um, just loving energy is what I think it is. And, and I have myself, right? So once I, can heal the inner child and let little Amanda know that nothing that was done to her, nothing that was said to her, nothing anybody did to make her feel the way that she felt was really even real. That was just other people's pain spilling out. Right. Um, and that I am love. That's it. I'm love. Just doesn't matter what's going on around me. And that yeah. makes me feel safe to then be all in and to be comfortable in relationships because I'm no longer looking for other people to fill my needs. Like, yes, of course, in a relationship, I mean, I'm not going to, if my husband's not filling some kind of need for me, then then that's kind of like empty, right? But like, I'm not dependent on it. I'm not dependent on it because I could do it myself. And that happened from healing my my inner child. Like I think of like pictures of me when I was like little and I just try to like send little Amanda like, just love. And like, you're, you've always been okay. You've always been okay. And whatever messages came to you, they were not real. That was not the truth. So the inner child part really is huge for me because I just always carried this, especially from the sexual trauma and stuff being young. I just always carried this like ickiness about myself or like this, just like not knowing my truth. So yeah, that got me, that definitely got me over. That was a game changer. That whole experience was a game changer of like, you're, you're okay. Like you are okay. You're always going to be okay. Whether I'm on this side of, of the ground or underneath it, doesn't matter where I am. I'm, my soul okay. is always okay. What, um, what does it look like with like parenting and stuff? Like how has this work impacted your role as a mother? I'm extremely aware. Yeah. of every single time yeah I do something or say something that was done to me that didn't feel good because I'm definitely not <laughs> I don't think anybody's a perfect parent listen my husband and I are trying super hard but like those kids are gonna end up on somebody's couch one day complaining about us I can't believe she did this I can't believe she did that and that's how it's supposed to be because they're supposed to learn their own lessons 
I'm not their higher power. They have their own and they have their own lessons that they came to learn. So no matter what I do, I could do backflips across this room all day long and they're still going to have to learn the lessons that they came here to learn. So I try to find self-compassion when I do mess up and I do things that later I'm like, oh, I have to go apologize for that or, oh, I shouldn't have done that, you know? Um, so I try to give myself grace when I don't do it perfectly. And, you know, it's it, every generation is supposed to be better than the la- than the last, right? So, yeah. like, right? Like things, they're going to go, when they're 25, 30 years old, things are going to be different. Society is going to be different. There's going to be so much more knowledge, so much more education, so, so much more available to them that they're going to say, I can't believe she did that. How could you have done that? But right now, I think it's the right thing to do. But we're going to learn in time that there are better ways to do it, right? So I try to take all that pressure off myself to like save my kids and do it perfectly because they got the genes. One of them at least has to have this alcoholic gene and this cellular, right? This dysfunction is cellular. So it's being passed down to them regardless of what I'm doing now. I'm making, I, I believe I'm making a difference and I am making it better for them, but it's not gone. It's not probably not going to be gone until maybe they're grandkids, right? Like we're just, I'm just doing my part, really. I'm just mm-hmm. doing my part along this journey to make it not as painful for them, but they're still going to have their struggle. What have, what have conversations related to alcoholism looks like? Cause I mean, you are meeting meetings all the time I and mean, you started a clubhouse. So they obviously are very, both of their parents are in AA. They're there a lot. Um, they used to be at the clubhouse a lot more than they are now, but, um, they're around a lot. They're around a lot of sober people. Like we'll have parties at our house or they'll come like most of the people that we hang out with are sober. Um, and they know that they have an allergy. They have an allergy that when, or they might have an allergy that they, you know, once they take a drink, they can't, they won't be able to stop. Like that's kind of how I put our addiction. And, you know, I say to them, you might need to test it. You might need to try it, you know, like, cause I believe if I say, don't go near it ever, they're going to, right? So I'm trying to play like a little, what do they call that? Like reverse psychology? Yes. Yeah. Games. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, you might need to check it out. You might need to see for yourself, you know, and my hope is that if they do turn on the allergy, if it does happen, that they just know where to go. The best thing my husband and I can do is stay sober. Like I really kind of trust the, the process with that. Um, even though, you know, I don't know what it's going to look like. Um, but yeah, conversations are just very honest. Uncle Jeremy died from addiction. You know, Aunt Louise died from addiction. You know, she too, my aunt also had cardiac arrest, but it said chronic due to chronic alcoholism. My cousin Kim died four months before my, my brother also from addiction. So like, they're aware that this is dangerous. What was I going to ask you? Parents parenting alcoholism alcoholism, trauma (laughs) yeah what else what else yeah this is not your podcast is not for the faint of heart man no we go deep and heavy yeah i like it on that note what did um what did addressing that sexual trauma look like so i did that towards the end of all my marriage counseling and my own personal healing around all, all all that the fear of loss and grief and all that Um, and I was able to then look at that and I did some EMDR for that. I did, um, you know, the tapping that you tap on like the different here and you get like the chi moving and all that. 
Um, so when like I would have thoughts and it would create anxiety or I'd want to pull away and went for my husband or just go inward or whatever, I would do that. Um, so I obviously did it in the, in the session with her a bunch of times and I did it on different ones. So like I have a couple of other ones that I, like, I don't even put in the book that just aren't again, like not super major, but affected me. So we did that every week, a different person, um, there's about five or six different, different ones that I did that on. Um, and then, and then, you know, and then recently, interestingly enough, um, one of my brother's friends, good friends, one of his best friends from high school just wrote a book about, um, sexual trauma. Very, very intense. Um, what's it called? It's called Glimmer, Glimmer, um, by Kimberly Shannon Murphy. Okay. And, uh, she talks about her, her grandfather was her abuser and it's just very intense. Um, I actually haven't finished it because I had to, I had to put it down because it, it sort of didn't necessarily trigger me where like I went into like a funk. It just, uh, made me like a little bit anxious and lost sleep one night. So maybe I guess it did trigger me a little. And then I was like, you know, and then another friend had told me a story like two days later about her dad and her uncle. And I was like, why is all of this coming to me? Like in the same week, like, is there a sign here? Like, am I supposed to look further into this? You know? So I did the hypnotherapy around, around that because I had done it the first time around my fear of loss and grief and trauma around my brother's death. And then I did it again on the sexual trauma. What kind and of I, hypnotherapy? Rapid resolution. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Solution therapy, which for, I don't know if people like know, but it's not like the, it's not like you're getting sleepy where like you're out, you're conscious, right? Is that, was that your experience? So I think that you did. Okay. So there's a couple things. There's rapid resolution therapy, and then there's something called rapid transformational therapy. Um, so I'm wondering if the thing that you did is, I think I might've had the guy on who did, his name is John Connolly. Do you know who? No. Okay. It was called RRT. RRT. Okay. I did. Yes. I know what that is. Let me make sure. I, the thing that fucked me up was called RTT. Oh, oh shit. Yeah. I felt very free after what she did because it really was just like a very deep, deep meditation and bringing me again to my true self. Did you do it in one session? Um, I did that one in one session. So the first time I saw her, typically it's, it's typically three sessions. So the first time I saw her was one, two, and then three around my uh, grief and fear of loss and Jeremy's sudden death. And then then I, then I just went back and go back for just like one off session. So like, I just called her up and I was like, I think I want to do it around my sexual trauma. So yeah, I felt extremely free after that. Um, the first round that I did back in maybe November is when I first did it. That brought me a lot of release from anxiety. That really actually, that was like a benefit that I didn't even know was going to happen, but I guess that's what it's all about. It's all about my fear, which is really anxiety of my husband dying. So that helped a lot. And then this next time around the sexual trauma was uh, extremely, extremely free. Like I felt euphoric afterwards because it's carving new neural pathways in my brain, right? Things that would take me a process that would probably take like 20 years to like think my way through because you could do it ever. Yeah. If ever. Exactly. Exactly. Um, happens like in an hour 
And I just, I, remember I got my car and I called my husband. I was almost crying. It was actually on my birthday. She only had a, she, it was very interesting because she only had a, a appointment available on my birthday. And, uh, and I just got in the car and I called my husband. I was like crying. I was like this, I feel so free. Like I've never felt more free in my life. Mm. And that is faded. I'm definitely not on cloud nine anymore. Like that's like an initial, like right after. But I'll tell you for my husband, he did it on his PTSD and he's like a new man, but he does, he meditates every single day, like with the focus of like the hypnosis and certain like sound waves. Like he's very much dedicated to it where I haven't really like made that a focus of a meditation or anything. So, but I mean, I still, I still feel good about it. I just feel so, that's why the tagline of my book is um, a boundless quest for emotional freedom and soul evolution. And it's boundless quest because it's just this never ending journey. Like never, like I, I don't ever want to, like I said, I don't ever want to like be completely healed and like all there. Like I always want to have something that I'm working. Yeah. On. You can work towards. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that, like, I just always want to keep getting better. So what are you working on now? Uh, balance actually right now with, with work, life, family, all that kind of stuff, because putting out my book in in May, which I wanted to do it earlier while my kids were still in school. But now I'm in that like intense marketing time where like, I, like I'm, I'm very, very busy and my kids are getting a little pissed at me that I don't like not giving them enough time. So I have to like really like force myself to like, okay, shut it down, stop thinking about it, put the phone away. So I've never really had to do that because I've been a stay-at-home mom my whole life. I've always just been able to my whole life of their lives. And I've just been able to out of the womb. Out of the womb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for like the past 11 years, I've just been, well, I started the book two years ago. So it took some time away from them probably when Lila was nine, but like from most of their lives, I've, I've, it's been dedicated completely to them. So now we're all going through a shift of, you know, mommy's allowed to have like something that fulfills her and I'm allowed to take this time, you know, and usually I do it while they're in school. So now that they're home, it's just been, that's been very, very challenging, but like on a real personal, like growth level, um, I don't know. I'm trying to get back into like a real dedicated meditation practice and be more out in nature. Like I'm, I'm trying, I feel like I've gotten away a little bit from like where I was, where I, I talk about in my book and that like real deep connection to myself. I'm, I feel like I'm being distracted and things are going on more on the material earthly plane. And I want to get more deep into my spirituality and maybe, maybe even go more into like, like mediumship stuff. Like I've done some medium training and that stuff is fascinating to me. So like I have a bit of a, of a connection. So, um, maybe dedicating more focus to, to that. You should look, there's this place called, um, it's called the Delphi. I don't know if it's Institute or university, but it's up in the Tennessee, Georgia border. Um, and they do a lot of like, kind of, they have one thing that's called, um, what is it called? Um, I can't remember, but they do like a lot of weird, like woo woo type training stuff. And I've, I've been there for, I did a meditation retreat there and it was crazy. I actually, so it was like in between Brian number one and Brian number two. And I had this, um, intuitive reading and, uh, and I, you know, I still didn't really, I guess I knew I was an adult child, but not like it hadn't fully sunk in yet, but she was talking to me about how my purpose this time was spiritual. 
in this lifetime. And I don't know what she was saying. I just knew it sounded super fucking lame. Like it sounded so lame. I was like, boring, you know? And like a lot of what she said didn't make any sense to me. And then it was crazy. I listened to it a couple of years later and I had had some more awareness at that point. And it was talking about my gift being communication. And it was just like a lot of more things made sense. And then I listened to it again about six months after I launched the podcast. And it was like, your gift is you, you have a way of saying things in a way in which people can receive it, that if the same person said the same thing, they couldn't, you will only be fulfilled if your vocation and your advocation align. I could see you having your own recovery groups and whatever you do, it will be spiritually and creatively based and it will be in the field of communication. It was like crazy. Perfect. And you know what you said, I was, I've been thinking about that idea lately about like that you can say things in a way that people can receive, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's why so many of us are being called to have our podcast, to write, to be creative, to put things out there, even though maybe it's been said before, although a lot of people aren't talking about what you're talking about, which is why how I found you. I was like searching people out, like who's talking about generational dysfunction, who's talking about this stuff. So thank you for doing the work that you do. Um, but even though there's like a lot of stuff that's been said a lot of times, it's okay for us. Like I went through this whole like imposter syndrome thing, right? Like when I first read it, started writing my book, I'm like, well, you know, this has already been said, or everybody knows this. My husband's like, first of all, not everybody knows everything you're talking about because they haven't been on a spiritual and, you know, quest of recovery for as long as you have. They just don't, they just don't know that yet. But even if they do, I'm saying it in a way that like, you know, Joe and Nancy could say the same thing, but for some reason, Susie's going to understand it better when I say it. Like, it's just, it's a, and it is a spiritual thing. Our spirits connect. Susie might trust me or she might have some sort of identification with me that she doesn't have with Joe or Nancy. So it's all good. Right. And I, yeah, I, I feel like I'm similar to you in that way with the talk about your podcast. Oh, so it's called soul rising all in on love, loss and connection. I do it with my friend, Ginny. She, she's amazing. She's very funny. And we have a really great, uh, like bounce off of each other. Like people say, like we, I'll say something and then it'll just spark like a thought in her and she'll say it. And we kind of just are really able to go back and forth very comfortably, easily. You know, we have like a little bit of an outline when we go in or we're like, we know what we're going to talk about, but it's not at all like planned. And usually typically, right? Like when you do a show or even anything, writing and stuff like that too, you always end up kind of somewhere where you didn't know you were going to go just Mm -hmm. from the conversation. So, um, it's all in on love, loss, and connection, which means um, we what we do is we kind of explore human emotion, um, all different emotions, the good, the bad, the ugly, the comfortable ones, the not so uncomfortable. Yes. There's Mainly the bad, just comfortable and uncomfortable. Yes, exactly. No good or bad. You're right. So more, and we explore more of the uncomfortable ones and we challenge people to like go all in with those things, with them, with themselves and to really feel those things and think about how that uncomfortable one uh, either serves to, or a comfortable one serves to connect or disconnect us from ourselves and then to others. And cause we're both really like, like what heavy on, what's heavy on our hearts is like the division in the world. And you know, everything that came up during COVID in 2020 was just a shit show. I know you like that word, shit show of a year. And um, we're both very passionate about trying to bring people back together. And I believe that it only happens when we heal our energy inside, because I think our energy inside 
the chaos and the unhealed parts of us are creating the chaos out in the world because I mean that's just like a whole spiritual ancient principle right like law of attraction what you put out is what you get back so it makes sense to me that what we're all putting out energetically when we're unhealed or we're in pain and we're suffering is creating suffering out in the world so that's pretty much our mission and we haven't had like guests or anything yet because I just have had to like take it one step at a time I haven't really learned how to do that yet but that'll be coming in the fall I'll be hitting you up to be on our show yeah thank you and uh yeah so it's just uh it's awesome it's a lot of fun so yeah it's on Apple it's on Spotify go check it out we go deep we definitely go deep we're very honest we divulge a lot of personal stories um, but then we have a way of bringing some levity to it. Some kind of like, yeah, which is so important. yeah, yeah. Because you can't sit there for an hour listening to just doom and gloom or stuff that feels he- really, really heavy. Mm-hmm. We have a good way pace of going in and then coming out and then going in and coming out so that people can, it's palatable to people. Nice. Have you been doing any like live book stuff? Um, so I had two launch parties. I had one here in Colorado, one in, one in New York. That was last, last week. I was back in New York for that. Um, yeah, that was so much fun. They were, they were really, really awesome. I was able to do a little reading and then we did a little interview and then a Q and a with the audience and got some really good ideas and just kind of like feedback from people, which felt really good because it, this stuff is not easy. Like we talked about when we first started talking, like, doing this kind of work can be very emotionally taxing. So it helps me to keep going mm-hmm. when I hear that like people appreciate it or it's helping people. Um, and I'm trying to, I'm going to do a local author event here in, in uh, one of the libraries in November. And then I'm doing a speaking event next weekend. Then I have another one going on in August. So uh, I've been on a bunch of podcasts and stuff like that. So that's sort of where I'm focusing, trying to spread the message and I'm trying to reach the most people. Mm-hmm. in the shortest amount of time so it's through speaking it's through talking right so um that's kind of what I'm what I'm focused on doing right now well nice we're gonna reach a bunch of people and I will put all your shit in the show notes and everyone needs to go check out your book I'm looking forward to finishing it thank you thank you for reading it and for taking the time to talk to me I'm